Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 31. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold... I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May God be, may God be praised. You may be seated. Good morning. So we're continuing in this series where we're talking about sharing God's love where we live, where we work, and where we play. We spent the last two weeks talking about sharing God's love where we live, the context of our neighbors, our neighborhoods, our apartment complexes, wherever you find yourself. And I hope that some of you have had opportunities to have meaningful interactions with your neighbors. Um, I've had a couple conversations with some of you that have been really meaningful to me as you've shared how God is tweaking your, your perspective, giving you a heart, re- helping you to recognize the opportunities that are there. And so I hope that that is happening. That's obviously the whole point of this series. <laughs> so ha- hopefully God is sparking that in you. I just heard actually t- today uh, someone in this room is going to have a movie in the park are actually in their yard with their neighbors uh, later on tonight. So it's a beautiful thing. All these great ways of engaging uh, with our neighbors. Um, So now we're going to move to work and talk about what does it look like to have our life in Christ play out in the context of our work. So I want you to think about your work right now. Okay, I want you to picture your work. For some of you, you have an office, an office space in mind. But picture... Uh, what will you be doing this time tomorrow? Maybe it'd be a good way to think about that. And I want to use that word work in the, in the broadest sense and acknowledge there, there are some of you in this room who do not receive a paycheck for your work, but you are definitely doing work. Uh, some of you are retired and you're not being paid like you used to, but you still have a ton of work and responsibility. 
Monday to Friday and beyond. Uh, some of you are full-time in raising children, uh, leading a household, and you may not get paid for that, but it is absolutely your work. So I want you to think, however broadly defined, um, picture your work. And, and what struck me this week as I was thinking about work is this, that for almost all of us, work is the primary context for the living out of our faith. Okay, let me say that one more time. For almost all of us, work is the primary context for the living out of our faith. And I'm not trying to make a a big spiritual point. I'm just doing the basic math, okay? Like, here's your life, right? Sunday to Saturday. Uh, And in general, this is stereotyped, of course, but generally speaking, here's your work, (laughs) okay? I know some of you are like, man, I wish that was my work. Mine's all Sunday Sunday and Saturday too, but, but just the math alone... So this is, this is where we spend our days. And so this is a, a place where we have to figure out how does my life with Christ integrate into this context where I spend most of my time. I came across this quote this week. If people can't find any spiritual meaning in their work, they're condemned to live a certain dual life, not connecting what they do on Sunday morning with what they do the rest of the week. Okay, we're here for 80 90 minutes a week, but we've got another 10,000 minutes where we're engaged in life. Much of that is work. And so we want to talk about, for the next two weeks, how do we integrate our life in Christ with what we do with most of our time? And what I want to do this morning is is set work in, in a broad context, just talk high level about a biblical view of work. And then next week, we'll get more into the details of what does it look like to actually be followers of Jesus in the nitty-gritty of our days. How do we interact with people? How do we, you know, approach things in days? So today what I want to do is stay high level and give you a, basically a biblical theology of work, a way of viewing what you do for most of your life. I think how scripture would invite us to consider how we engage in that time. What I want to do is take us through the story of scripture, the three big chapters of scripture of creation, and then fall, and then redemption in Christ, and and trace work through those three big chapters, all right? And we'll get into the nitty-gritties next week. All right, so let's start with creation. I want to talk about God's plan for our work from the beginning. And we go to Genesis 1 that John just read us. Two things we learn about in Genesis 1 and 2 about work that are basic but really important. The first one's a really basic and really important. It's this. What we learn in Genesis 1 is this. First off, God himself is a worker. <laughs> the creator God is a worker. The story of Genesis 1 is told as, as God being a worker who works a six-day work week followed by a day of rest, just like many of us do. But he's presented as Working, his creation, he's, he's busy with activity and work in that first week of creation. And, and his work takes two forms. One form is he creates things out of nothing, right? He just speaks and things appear. That's one way his work takes shape. But the other way is you find him in, in chapter one also organizing things, bringing order where there's chaos, separating things. So he creates things, and, and in verse two it says that the, world, the earth was first, it was formless and void. Didn't have any form, there weren't any inhabitants. And what God does then in six days is he brings order out of this formlessness. He separates light and darkness, right? He separates the sky from the sea and the sea from the land, and then he starts filling it with creatures. 
He's a worker, organizing, shaping, developing. All right? And there's this refrain that happens throughout Genesis 1, which is God steps back and it says, and God saw that it was good. Right? So he's presented as a, as a person who's working, who works hard for the day, and then steps back and enjoys the fruit of his labor. He says, yeah, that's good work I did. And then, of course, at the end of six days, he takes an entire day to step back and notice, ah, oh, this is very good, a Sabbath day. So basic point, but really important. Work is something that God himself does. Work is not something that's beneath God, okay? To put it simply. God is not pictured as a God of of just contemplation and leisure up there. No, he's a worker. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. People say, why are you healing on the Sabbath? Jesus says, well, my heavenly father, he's working to this very day, and so I too am working, all right? First point, God himself is a worker. And then secondly, again, basic points, but the second is that when God created us, God created us for work. He created us to work. So let's look at our passage here. Chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So after creating all the other creatures, he makes one creature who says, They are unique and special. They are in my image, male and female together in my image, my image bears. And then in verse 28, the first thing God does is gives these image bears work to do. Take a look at verse 28. So God, uh, so God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Here's what I want to focus on. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So image bearers sent out to do this work, which is to rule over the creatures and to, what he says, subdue the earth. Or your, your translation may be to govern the earth. Okay? That word subdue is a pretty strong word. And I don't think God is saying, I want you to go and exploit the earth and, you know, dominate the earth, use it for your own advantages, but it is a strong word and it implies the earth that God has created needs some subduing, okay? So I think the idea here is that God created and what he created was good, but it was still new. It was undeveloped. It was ripe with potential, if I can put it that way. And he's asking his image bearers to now go and develop this thing that God has made. So I think the best illustration of this is to look at what happens in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 15. So the first human couple, Adam and Eve, God puts them in the Garden of Eden, right? And look at what it says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and to take care of it. So Adam and Eve are put in the garden essentially to be the gardeners. Now, I'm pretty sure that Garden of Eden was perfect, right? There was nothing wrong with it. It wasn't broken. There was no sin. And yet, even in its perfection, it needed a gardener. It needed someone to organize it, to work it, to see the, the potential that was present in the plants and in, in, in all of it, and to bring out its beauty through work, through ruling it, through governing it, through watching over, even in its perfect state. And I think that picture of gardening a garden... Okay, that specific vocation that Adam and Eve were given, I think that has implications for all the kinds of works that God intended for humanity to have, not just gardening, of course. That, that when God said subdue 
my world, what he's saying is take the raw materials of creation, all, what I've presented here, and, and shape it and cultivate it in ways that bring me glory, that ways that add value to my creation. Uh, Tim Keller wrote a book on work called Every Good Endeavor, which I would strongly recommend. Um, and he has a great quote here. He talks about how this works out in various fields of work. Music, how we subdue, how we cultivate. Music takes the physics of sound and rearranges it into something beautiful and thrilling that brings meaning to life. When we take fabric and make a piece of clothing, when we push a broom and clean up a room, when we use technology to harness the forces of electricity, when we take an unformed, naive human mind and teach it a subject, when we teach a couple how to resolve their relational disputes, we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, and subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. Pretty cool, huh? We could apply that to any job, okay? Whether we're in education, whether we're in business, whether we're in real estate, whether we're in law, whether we're in medicine, whatever, is any time that we are, we are adding good, add, providing a service, providing a product that adds a net good to society, that is part of our subduing and cultivating and filling, fulfilling the role that God gave us to go out and subdue the earth. So I, I want to touch on the, um, the 500-year anniversary of, of the Reformation, too, because uh, this was one of the big revelations for the, the reformers, was the dignity of all human work. And yeah, just this idea that all work has dignity because God gave us it to work. So in the, before then, in the medieval era, you had this, um, this big split between work that was considered sacred, which would be like the work of the priest, essentially, and the clergy and the church, and then work that was secular, which is basically everybody else's work, the farmer, the blacksmith, uh, you know, wh- whoever it might be. And, and really, the, the, the church folk, the clergy, were the only one that were, were called into their ministry. And Martin Luther, who really kicked off uh, the Reformation, he rediscovered these biblical truths, uh, Truths like what we call the priesthood of all believers. That all believers are priests, right, in the church and beyond. And that all work, not just ministry, church ministry or missionary work, all work can be a sacred vocation if done for the glory of God. And that the farmer and the blacksmith are as much called into their ministry as the priest is called into his ministry. Now, we still have a hard time. The old way of thinking still comes back. And a lot of times we'll hear stories of someone who was in marketplace ministry for years, you know, and then like the spirit grabbed a hold of them. And then they said, I left that to do full-time ministry, right? As if what they were doing before wasn't full-time ministry. Okay, what they mean is I went into full-time church ministry, but hopefully they were doing full-time ministry beforehand. But for Luther, uh, he had this great phrase. He said that our various occupations, he called them, they are the masks of God. And what he meant was that God is busy in the world providing for us, uh, you know, protecting us and, and giving us his grace in all sorts of ways. And occupations, are, our own work is the way that God usually provides for us. They're, he's hidden behind human work, but he's there operating, providing for us through the work of others, blessing us through the work of others. So like this Bible right here that I get to read in front of you all and 
when I'm by myself. Uh, someone has published this, has bound this together. It's been a work that has been an incredible blessing to me. I receive God's grace through that work. And you're all sitting in chairs this morning that are, I think, pretty comfortable, that allow you to sit and learn and, and sing and all of that. That happens through the work of other people. We have kids down the hallway right now. Most of them are relatively healthy right now um, due to the work of others, right? We'll walk out into the parking lot, go out into the streets. We have pretty safe streets around here due to the work of others. All of these are examples of God's grace and provision coming to us through the works, work of others. It's God's masks, Luther said. All right, so just to sum up, in, in, in creation, what we learn is that work is not a result of the fall, right? Work is not a necessary evil. Work is an inherently good thing. At least that's how God intended it to be. It's part of what it means to be made in his image. And our work is one of the ways that we love God and love others. It's one of the ways we contribute to the common good. And God actually works through our work to bless others in various forms, according to each of our occupations and vocations. All right, so that's what creation has to say. Of course, we all know that's not all that can be said about work, right? So let's look at the fall for about three minutes. (laughs) We're staying high level today. What happens at the fall? So God has these two image bearers, Adam and Eve, this couple, and he puts them in charge of this garden to be gardeners. And of course, you know the story, but they're deceived by the serpent. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is essentially to say they take the role of God. They say, no, we want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. I think we'll do that. We'll take, we'll choose the pathway of independence and sin enters into the world. And now everything, because of that, everything's out of whack including our work. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 17. This is where God is pronouncing essentially the consequences that sin will now have in a fallen world. And he addresses Adam in particular in this theme of work. Verse 17 to Adam, he says, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Here's the consequence. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Okay, the key phrase I want to focus on is this this phrase, through painful toil. God says, now your work will involve painful toil. What I originally designed to always be life-giving and energizing and fruitful, you will now often experience as painful and frustrating and tiring and fruitless, right? Painful toil. And he mentions in Adam's case, the ground will produce thorns and thistles. Okay, thorns and thistles are the problems that are especially pertinent to gardening, which was his trade. But I think there's implication we can take for all of work, that that all work now is going to have its own versions of thorns and thistles. And I thought about it, I didn't get to this early enough, but I wanted to email a bunch of you this week from different occupations and ask you, what are the thorns and thistles in your line of work? I might still do that for next week. It would be kind of fun. I had a couple of thoughts of my own. Here's a couple of thorns and thistles. 
uh, deals that you've been working on for months and sometimes even years that fall through the last minute. Students who aren't particularly interested in learning what you have to teach them. Bosses who treat employees like cogs in a machine. Judges that don't always make a just ruling. Coworkers who sometimes take credit for the work you've done. Computer viruses. Commutes on the 405. Uh, The drudgery of the daily grind, conflict, envy, fatigue, futility, in short, thorns and thistles, painful toil. All of this is now part of work. So now this thing that was supposed to be life-giving and energizing, we often experience as, as a necessary evil, as something we have to do to make a living, but something that oftentimes we'd rather avoid if we could. Uh, Keller mentioned something else that happens at the fall that I thought is is really helpful, that our our relationship to work has been distorted in several ways. One is, of course, it just gets harder. But the thing he says is also what happens at the fall, not only do we sometimes want to avoid work, but sometimes we do the opposite. And we want to make work our salvation. That now we have this this unhealthy attachment to work where we say, this is the thing that's going to give my life meaning and purpose. Work becomes the place where I try to prove myself to myself, to my peers, to my parents, to whoever. That work becomes a place where like I put all the chips of my identity. I'm like, this is the thing that I'm going to go to to try to make me feel good. And so now there's this pressure to earn a lot of money, to, towards career advancement, towards recognition, towards things that make work much more complicated. Again, Keller, I think he says it really well. He says this, because of the fall... Instead of work being a way to love my neighbor, it becomes a way to distinguish myself from my neighbor, to show the world and to prove to myself that I'm special. (laughs) It is a way to accumulate power and security. It's a way to feel when I go to a party and someone says, what do you do? I can say something that makes me feel legitimate in this world, right? And that that, that burden to prove ourselves through work brings all sorts of complications through work as, and I could, we could all imagine what those might be. All right, so this thing that God intended to be life-giving now is fraught with painful toil. Creation, fall. But what happens in redemption? Okay, how does the coming of Christ help redeem our relationship with work? Very basic, big picture. But just to remind you, here's the gospel. Jesus Christ, God's son, okay? He enters into the world that he created, the world that is now marred by sin. He enters in because he loves us. And he comes to do a work, to work, to do what he says, the work that his father gave him to do. And the work that his father gave him to do was to do the one work that none of us can do for ourselves, okay? Which is to offer his sinless, perfect life as a sacrifice for ours. Was to give himself away for us so that we might have forgiveness, so that we might be called God's children, so that we might have salvation and receive God's grace. It's the one work that we cannot do for ourselves. He was willing to do that work, and he does it because he loves us and gave himself for us. So here's what happens (laughs) when that gospel, when that good news starts to get inside of you, when Jesus Christ and his person starts to become real to you, not just on paper, but a living 
person who is real to you, it starts to impact how you do everything, including how you do your work. And to say it in just a cliche and simple way, what happens in redemption is Jesus himself now comes into the center of our work. (laughs) He, He himself comes to be at the center even of our work, and that changes everything about how we go about our work. So let me give you two passages from the book of Colossians, two, two moments that Paul uh, mentions that are, that are key to this. There's so many other passages we could go to. Here's what Paul says, not yet talking about work. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, whatever you do, you now do it for Jesus. You do it for his glory You do because of what he's done for you. So whatever you do, whether you do medicine or law or construction or business or entrepreneurship, whatever you do, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then Paul goes on to talk about a specific work context in the first century. He goes and starts talking to slaves and masters, okay? Now, uh, first century slavery was quite different than the slavery that we know about in our nation's history, okay? It didn't have a racial component to it. It was often not lifelong in its, in its effect, so it was more of like this indentured servant. But that being said, it was still a, a brutal thing oftentimes. I mean, if you think you know painful toil at your work, imagine what first century uh, slaves uh, endured. And this is what Paul says. He basically applies that to their calling, or not calling, but their situation as slaves. This is what he says. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's simple and radical stuff. As working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Paul's saying this, when Jesus enters into our lives, what it means is we now have a new audience at work. We have a new motivation at work. We are no longer just working for our boss. We are no longer just working for a paycheck. We are no longer just working for recognition. We are no longer working for career advancement, though all of those things might come, but we are working for Jesus which is a kind of a strange thing. We're aiming to please him and serve him in everything we do at work. It's a radical idea and it changes the painful toil we experience, okay? It doesn't take the painful toil away, right? (laughs) Jesus doesn't remove the painful toil, but what it means now is now we have a faithful companion who walks with us moment by moment throughout the painful toil of our working days. Jesus is there with us, alongside us, as we face the stresses, the challenges, and even the failures of work. He is our faithful companion. And it also changes our, that unhealthy attachment to work, that we, we go to work to prove ourselves. Because if I'm finding my identity in Jesus, if what gives me a sense of meaning and purpose in life is the fact that Jesus loves me, that he gave himself for me, that I'm a child of God, that I am destined for this eternal glory with God. That's what gives me a sense of legitimacy and purpose. Well, then I'm freed. 
I'm freed from having to so desperately try to prove myself through my work. I'm freed from the need for recognition, the need for a certain kind of job, the need for a certain kind of paycheck. I know we still want those things, but that desperate need to prove myself, I'm freed from that. And what that means I'm freed for is I am now freed to do the one thing that God calls me to through work, which is to love God and to love neighbor. Work becomes a context in which I am trying to love God and to love my neighbor. I can begin to love the work itself and I can begin to see my work as a service now to the larger good through my gifts and passions. Freed to love. So that's a high level, (laughs) very basic overview of how work moves from creation, fall to redemption. And next week we're going to talk about, okay, what? Jesus at the center of my work, like, nice idea. But what does that actually look like? How does that relate to outreach? Okay? So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to invite Grant Van Cleve up to share a little bit of his own story with work. Um, I consider this sort of an anti-story, a counter-story. What you normally hear in in churches is uh, someone comes up and says, I was in the marketplace for, you know, 40 years, and then God got a hold of me, and he called me to the mission field, or he called me into full-time church ministry. Um, This is the very opposite story (laughs) about someone who was doing church ministry for years and has now been called into marketplace ministry. Yeah, thank you. No, it's not. (laughs) Thank you. Some of you have heard some parts of our story. We came back here in 2010 after 19 years in the mission field, primarily in the country of Albania. The we being my wife, Karina here, who's from Sweden, and our three kids. Um, yeah, there's an interesting twist to the story, and I might not be the natural one you'd bring up here, but I think part of my journey and my pilgrimage in and out and back into the workforce does tell us something interesting. The, uh, the journey I had to go through, the things I had to absorb, some parts of it. So Mark was, uh, in his prayer, talked about the congruence of calling, about kind of weaving these things together. Some parts of that I got right, this thing about, you know, I got saved pretty radically in a college ministry, out of nowhere, chasing the wrong things, turned corner, change of mindset, change of uh, ownership, really, this sense of being a, a servant of the Lord and bought at a price by him. So I was available to him, wanted his glory, his uh, will to be done in my life. So there's a, a sense in which that's our primary calling. Oz Guinness talks about that if you've ever read this book called The Call. Our primary calling is to him. I got that part right. And then there's another sense of being available for what he would have for us in some geographic sense. So it might not be, you could be a teacher, but are you ready to, you might be a call to be a teacher in Santa Ana School District, not in Newport Mesa, so to speak. In our case, it was a sense of taking this availability to him. And in that uh, sense, maybe Isaiah 6, you remember that there's this call to, somebody needs to do something about these unruly Israelites. Who's going to do something for it? And Isaiah raises his hand and says, Who, here I am, Lord, send me. So when the Berlin Wall was falling in the late 80s, early 90s, I was a new believer and we're praying about these things and things are happening and God says, who can go? It was like, great, here I am, send me. Started out as a short-term mission trip and ended up being a, uh, you know, after who will go on that, then it's who's going to stay because people are coming to the Lord. And so I stayed, church planting missionary, uh, got established there, spent years of really interesting ministry. We could talk about those stories, but Uh, an interesting thing, so I'm sort of some congruence of there, of a calling to him and a congruence of saying, uh, where do you want me to be? And I'm saying yes to that. 
Then a moment came when one of our Albanian believers uh, was in a conversation, a pastoral conversation with him about how he was uh, considering emigrating to another country, and we were talking about see if he could get a little more money from us for the task we had for him for translating some books for us. And I was saying, you know, you're actually a trained lawyer. Is there is there any reason you wouldn't be using that in the Albanian context? Maybe there'd be some money in that. Maybe there'd be some ways to impact people. And we went to the parable of the talents about you know somebody buries this thing they're given with, and somebody else is making a multiple return on it, and. Uh, I challenged him, you know, the word talent there is referring to money, not our actual talents, but that it, it translates over. What are you doing with what's God's implanted inside of you? And he says, wow, that is, that's food for thought. So how does that apply to you, Grant? And I was like, you must have missed it. I'm a missionary. I left Orange County. Do you want to, you know, let's go head over there, tell you what I had and what I'm living in here. And, you know, I'm all in. I'm not burying anything. I'm making it all available. He's like, yeah, but it's not really about that, is it? It's about fanning into flame something that's inside you. You're wired to do something a certain way. And that began a journey, a, uh, a journey of understanding some things about my context. What was it that the Albanians we were working among needed? They were emigrating for a reason. Money was there. There was a sense of dignity that comes from a day's work. There was a sense in which the society we were working among was rotting. And it was rotting at the inside, and there were parts of which we were just kind of creating, emphasizing indirectly this secular, sacred dichotomy of saying that there are spiritual things to do. Hey, come and translate Bible studies with me, and we'll go to the village. Uh, or, um, you know, there's some sense in which we were spiritualizing. We were saving people, and we were saying, get involved in Christian ministry, which translated to church ministry. And I was actually, at about that time, I was led to a quote by Dorothy Sayers. Uh, this was actually in, uh, after World War II in England, but I think it had relevance to us today as it did to me at that moment. She says, In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. And that vocation, that sense of calling that we talked about earlier with the Reformation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find as a result that the secular world has turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in religion that seems to have no concerns with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religious makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Chronologically, the bulk of our day is in the workforce. The way we encounter people is in the workforce. And the way we, one of the primary ways we transmit the truth is not just through loving him and loving others, but through actually making great tables. Finding out what you're wired for and making it a part of redeeming this world that's in trouble and needs us. So God was stirring me, saying, am I willing to put into play at the deepest levels the ways he's, the things he's put inside me? Geographic question, I could do that here, I could do it there. There was something going on, do I go back and become a real estate developer in Orange County as I was supposed to do, or do I stay and do church planting in Albania, and maybe it was both. So I actually went into starting businesses and starting real estate projects in the country of Albania. 
which was kind of a missionary role. Yes, that was where I was stopping these people from emigrating, but I'm modeling something in there. But even interestingly, in my daily conversations when I'd have a coffee with an Albanian in an evening, it was like twice as potent because quickly I understood more about their world. I actually knew about the corruption he was dealing with. I actually could talk about the things he was dealing with with his co-workers. I could relate to daily life because I was in the real life that he was a part of. So even from a spiritual perspective, it was more fruitful because I was involved in that marketplace. But I also saw uh, things changing, trans structures being transformed, started to see the marketplace change there. Could probably just stop there, and that would already be an interesting thing of going even within a missions context to involve uh, a broader sense of vocation. But we moved back then in 2010, had to give up again. Uh, this kind of interesting role I had developed. And this goes back to the sense of identity in the work. I wasn't able to come back and be a real estate developer because real estate development had crashed at that point in 2010. Um, So I came back and began a a, a process again of saying, what does it look like to bloom where I'm planted? What does it look like to use whatever I've got in here? Didn't have a natural career track. Didn't have a parent's company to move back into. Didn't even the sector of work that I was starting to get interested was on the downside, and it began yet another career transition, Um, dabbled here, there, but actually found that in that process of leaning into God and saying, what do you have for me? What are the spiritual gifts you're giving me? What is this soil you've put me in, and what do you want me to do here? I've actually had a a kind of a separate, deeper story, but a very interesting experience of getting suddenly finding a convergence of calling now that I've never felt before, which is a strange thing to say since you would say, oh, you know, you went out and did missions overseas, you got fully involved and did some super fruitful things, but it is now actually that combination of taking this pastoral sense I'd done and bring that into marketplace life, take that uh, sense of that urging that I had seen inside me to try and create efficiencies and effectiveness, to do that ordering of the world that he talked about, being able to see that in the marketplace here, and then specifically doing it in the context. And for me, it's this entrepreneurial side of seeing startups being created ex nihilo, out of nowhere, seeing an idea where that didn't exist flourish, to see something that was kind of a mess and start to turn it into some design that starts to create life and then add insights to those people doing those things. That's my particular journey at the moment, but the takeaway you know, is the sense that the, not only is work okay, but work could be the place in which uh, we're channeling who we are at the greatest level. To challenge for everybody, in whatever work you're in, to dare to say what would convergence of calling look like at a deeper level? What would, how would that be fulfilling for you? How would you be able to put those things into play for the good of the world around you? I th- think it's also a challenge when we have a a transition to be able to lean into it and say, maybe there's something God's got in this. And I would say it's also a challenge for us if we're in that stage of life in retirement or uh, maybe in a position where we have some financial freedom that we wouldn't have to work, but that the highest goal isn't leisure. The highest goal isn't to be able to reflect, but the highest goal would be to fan into flame, to put into play, to create redemptive stories out of what God's put inside you and keep at it. All right, thanks. Thank you, Grant. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up our lives to you. And as we've looked at your plan for 
shaping this world through our work. Uh, would you equip and inspire and encourage uh, each of us now as we move out into our week to do the things we do? Jesus, would you be our faithful companion? Would you be at the center of what motivates us to do what we do? Wherever we go, may we be salt and light there, and may we bring you glory there. So equip us for that task this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.